There are, throughout history, many non-Jews who have earned the everlasting gratitude of the Jewish people. But very, very few have been granted what might be the most coveted title, that of Anointed One, or Messiah, which is closely related to a real mensch, which is what my grandmother used to call me, so hey. But anyway, such was the contribution of King Cyrus the Great of Persia that the Hebrew Bible and Jewish history lauded him as one of the great saviors of the Jewish people, a mensch and a messiah. In the year 539 BCE, Cyrus led the Persians, coming from the east in what is today Iran, against the Babylonians and succeeded in bringing the empire down. He is credited with an enlightened social and religious policy that brought a swift end to the exile of the Jews, a return to Jerusalem, and the rebuilding of the temple there, the second temple. The biblical writers held up Cyrus as the instrument of God for the redemption of the Jews from their captivity in Babylon, which had lasted around 50 years. And yet it wasn't all so easy. As we discussed last episode, the exiles were now bringing home almost an entirely new religion, an early form of Judaism. But the exiles were only part of the wider Israelite population, many of whom, the rural poor in particular, had remained behind in Judah. Now that the exiles came swaggering back home with their newfangled ideas about God and worship and identity, there was bound to be conflict. In this post-exile world, who gets to be a Jew? And who gets to decide that? We've been talking about the first thousand years or so of Jewish history this season, and, well, we're coming up on it. We've been pursuing the question of how the Jews became Jews. These last few episodes, we'll be looking at this post-exile world under the Persian Empire, the relative calm before the coming storm that will be the Greeks. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and as always, welcome back to Jew Oughta Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. The last ruler of Babylon, a man named Balsharusur, but whom the Hebrew Bible calls Balshazar, he was hosting a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. He ordered that the golden vessels stolen from the temple in Jerusalem be brought out, and the partygoers drank liberally while praising the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. But then Belshazzar was shocked to see a disembodied human hand writing something on the wall of his palace. No one there could read what has come down to us as the phrase, the writing on the wall. A young Israelite exile serving in the royal palace was summoned to decipher the text. His name was Daniel, and despite his service to the crown, he remained loyal to the God of Israel. The Babylonians knew him as a man with the spirit of the gods in him. Belshazzar tells him that, Illumination, knowledge, and extraordinary wisdom are to be found in you, which is not something that any of my ex-girlfriends have ever said about me, but anyway. Where all the king's magicians had failed to decipher the message, could Daniel illuminate the writing on the wall? He could. Mene, mene, tekel uparsin was the enigmatic phrase written there. Daniel told Belshazzar that God had numbered the days of his kingdom and brought it to an end. The king had been weighed in the balance and found wanting, and his kingdom will be divided and given over to the Persians and others. That very night, records the Hebrew Bible, Belshazzar was killed. This story, recorded in the book of Daniel, is apocryphal. 
It was written centuries later as a commentary on what was then the situation between the Jews and the Greeks. Although it's not the last book in the order of the Hebrew Bible, it was probably the last one to be written. And although it's not a true story, it is speaking to a truth. That the Jews saw the events of the fall of the Babylonian Empire as an unmistakable act of God for their redemption and salvation. Balshar Asur was a real person. He wasn't the king of Babylon, but the caretaker, as the real king was largely absent. It didn't matter. The end was coming anyway. The Persians were rising in the east. After a series of military losses to the Persian king, Cyrus, the Babylonians threw in the towel, peacefully turning over the keys to Babylon rather than see the city destroyed. The year was 539 BCE, and Jewish history was about to change. Cyrus the Great and his Persian Empire have come down in history as a remarkably enlightened and lenient superpower, the first to promote the concept of human rights and freedom of worship for its diverse subjects. This is one part true, one part Persian propaganda, and one part storyline from the Hebrew Bible, but it did have important implications for the Jews. The Hebrew Bible records that Cyrus issued an edict allowing the exiled Jews of Babylon to return to the land of Israel and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. For this act, the writer we call Second Isaiah hails Cyrus as God's anointed one, which is translated as Messiah. Cyrus is the only non-Jew bestowed with this title in the Bible, which indicates the singular place he held in the Jews' perspective. Just as the Babylonians were the instrument of God's punishment, now Cyrus is the instrument of God's salvation. Though Cyrus knew not God, it was God that in 2nd Isaiah's words, marched before him, opening doors, leveling hills, and giving him the concealed treasures, all so that Cyrus would come to know that, It is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. For the exiled Jews, this was another unmistakable sign of God's singularity, what we understand now as monotheism. There is none but me, says God. I am the Lord, and there is none else. The Cyrus Edict features several times in the Hebrew Bible, the legal document that Cyrus issued to allow the Jews to return to Israel and rebuild the temple, one of the pillar texts of Jewish history. If it ever did exist, it has been lost. But we do have something similar. An eight-inch-long clay cylinder found in Babylon and inscribed with Cyrus's account of his taking of the city. In it, Cyrus accuses the Babylonian king of perverting the Babylonian gods and oppressing the people, who had complained to the main Babylonian god, Marduk. Marduk then chose Cyrus to sack the city and expand his kingship over all the neighboring territories, much to the delight of the people of Babylon, who had now been rescued. Now here's the part that's relevant for the Jews. In his cylinder, Cyrus claims to have freed all the people of Babylon from servitude, restored the temples and religious sites of Babylon's neighbors, and returned previously deported people to their original homelands. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask Marduk and Nabu each day for a long life for me and speak well of me to him, he inscribed in the cylinder. So while the cylinder doesn't mention the Jews specifically, and while we don't have evidence of a specific edict concerning the Jews, it's not unreasonable to conclude that the Jews are part of the diverse groups of people permitted to return home and rebuild their sacred shrines. 
Now, the Persians didn't do this because they were personally committed to the values of human rights and freedom of worship. The Cyrus Cylinder is imperial propaganda. It's intended to portray Babylon's Persian conqueror as a legitimate ruler. He's not against the Babylonian people, he's just against that crappy king you had, removed him, and is now a king, you know, for the people. However, the historian Mary Joan Leith also writes that the Persians had a reason for their religious tolerance and non-interference in the cultural traditions of their subjects. They wanted a stable empire, and they believed that respecting the multiculturalism of their conquered lands was the best way to achieve that. It served their political and economic purposes. In exchange for this freedom, temples were forced to pay tribute, taxes, to the empire, usually in the form of food, livestock, wool, and labor. The Persians, then, she writes, had a tendency to co-opt local religious and political traditions in the interest of imperial control. In other words, the religious freedom bestowed on conquered peoples also helped the Persians keep control over their far-flung provinces and make money in the process. By all criteria by which history judges, the Persians did indeed have a very successful empire. And this sort of arrangement was actually pretty good for the Jews at this point. They didn't have much hope in regaining independence, so they weren't much inclined towards rebellion anyway. And this cultural and religious freedom helped the exiled Jews in their efforts to reconstitute their community back in the land of Israel. However, not all the Jews in Babylon took advantage of this opportunity to leave. In fact, it's likely that only a small number chose to head back. The historian Eric Myers writes that such a modest return perhaps meant that Jews in the diaspora were so successful and assimilated that they viewed Zion more as their ancestral homeland than as a place to which they and their extended families would return. Life in Babylon was pretty good, even under the Persians. Jews were living in the great cosmopolitan city of the world. Judah, and especially Jerusalem, was a rural backwater, and many Jews were quite happy to stay where they were, being more or less accepted and many becoming quite wealthy and successful. They stayed not just through the Persian era, but through the subsequent Greek, Muslim, and modern periods as well, for 2,500 years, until nearly the entire community was forced out of Iraq just before and after the creation of Israel. They would produce the Babylonian Talmud, one of the greatest literary works of Judaism, and for centuries serve as one of the most important centers of Jewish learning and culture in history. Cyrus the Great took Babylon in the year 539 BCE, and Jewish tradition holds that the first group of exiles returned to Israel a year later, in 538. We're not quite sure who led them, or if that year is the correct one. There are different accounts. It might have been as late as 520. The Bible says that it was either Sheshbazar or Zerubbabel who led the exiles back, and became the first appointed governor of what was now the Persian province of Judah, or Yehud. They may have been direct descendants of King David, and that would normally be a big plus. But the prophet Jeremiah had already condemned the line of David to fall, along with Jerusalem, back at the start of the exile in 586. And Cyrus wasn't sending them back to restart the Israelite monarchy, but instead to serve as governors for the Persians. He gave Sheshbazar the gold and silver ritual vessels from the temple, and according to the Bible, sent him off to Judah with 42,000 exiled Judeans, a number that is certainly way too high. We don't know what the real number was, but it was likely small. In any case, whether it was Sheshbazar or Zerubbabel, 
One of their first tasks was to begin rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. It was not the triumph they expected. For one thing, they found Judah much diminished from when they had left it some 50 years earlier. The population had been drained away. Many Israelites ended up in Babylon or Egypt or other places around the Near East. Those that stayed were the rural poor. They had migrated to the northern part of the kingdom, which had mostly escaped the devastation brought by the Babylonians. Jerusalem and its surroundings were in a sorry state and populated by perhaps only a few hundred people. It seems they were living in shanty houses constructed from the rubble left behind by the Babylonians and only slowly rebuilding the city's essentials. They didn't have the means to start building a magnificent new temple. The Bible records that the locals had been making pilgrimage to the ruins of the temple this whole time, but beyond possibly some preliminary work, it seems that not much was done in the temple before about 520 BCE. The exiles quickly realized they had a lot of work to do first. The archaeological record for this era is pretty thin. Very occasionally, small seals, figurines, or other inscriptions turn up, but we don't have a lot of hard evidence about what exactly was going on when. The Hebrew Bible treatment of this era was written by the exiles, and they were concerned with what was happening with them. They didn't write nearly anything about what was happening back in Judah during the exile. And as we'll see, they didn't have a favorable opinion of the people left behind either. The point is that we don't really know what happened between 538 and 520. Maybe it was nothing. Perhaps the exiles didn't even first arrive until 520, when the governor Zerubbabel was in place. We don't know whatever happened to Sheshbazar. The Bible just suddenly drops him off the plot. But in 520, conditions in Jerusalem seemed to have begun improving, and Zerubbabel was hot to rebuild the temple. He was helped by two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, Post-exile Judaism had three prophets, the other one being Malachi, who comes about a hundred years later. All three are considered minor prophets, playing only a relatively small role and about whom we don't know too much. But both Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the people to rebuild the temple. They said that rather than posing an additional burden on scarce resources, rebuilding the temple would instead bring the prosperity needed to build back the rest of Jerusalem. The question is why? Why this focus on rebuilding the temple so quickly? The historian Mary Joan Leith writes that the Jewish rebuilders of the temple clearly subscribed to the ancient Near Eastern and pre-exilic Jerusalem worldview that a nation's well-being depended on the maintenance of the central sacrificial cult. Haggai and Zechariah believed that rebuilding the temple would, she said, reverse Yahweh's curse on the land. Zechariah refers to the temple as the Holy Mountain, and this, she writes, echoes standard ancient Near Eastern as well as biblical literary and visual imagery, which connects earthly and heavenly realms. As such, it is the locus of God's covenantal law and justice. In other words, the temple is really important. In 520, the temple foundations were laid in great ceremony. A rededication of the holy spaces accompanied with music and songs and prayer and ritual burnt sacrifices. Although the temple didn't look like much yet, and certainly not in comparison to what Solomon had built before, it was still a triumphant moment for those who had been alive during its destruction in 586. An incredible, redemptive return to what they worried had been lost forever. A reminder that no matter what, all hope is not lost. And yet, what should have been a moment of Jewish unity, 
instead revealed some serious divisions. Who, in this new age now, gets to be a Jew? The big question we're answering this season is, where did the Jews come from? How did the Jews become Jews? We've been following the thread of the Babylonian exiles because they're the ones who morphed Israelite religion into Judaism. But they weren't the only ones around. Let's go back a second. When the Assyrians conquered the Kingdom of Israel back in 720 BCE, the territory became known as Samarina, or Samaria, which was also the name of its capital city. It was located in what is today the northern part of the West Bank and northern Israel. Now, we have three groups of people. Some Israelites had continued living there in what was formerly the territory of the Kingdom of Israel, on down through the exile, maintaining their distinct Israelite identity. Others had intermarried with the colonists whom the Assyrians had settled in Samaria, and their descendants were now of mixed background. Amongst these mixes, some had continued to keep an affinity for the worship of Yahweh, And then there was a third group, Judahites, down in Judah, who had never been exiled in the first place. When these non-exiled people heard that the exiles were rebuilding the temple, they went to the new Jewish governor, Zerubbabel, and offered to help out. The book of Ezra records his response. He said, It is not for you and us to build a house to our God, but we alone will build it. Which was quite rude, and that's how it was taken. From then on, says Ezra, the people plotted against the exiles. They wrote a letter to Cyrus's son, now king of Persia, claiming that the exiles were building the temple in order to incite rebellion. Which is exactly what I told the city about the people who park in front of my house all the time. Now the locals were more successful than I was. They got the king of Persia to stop construction for a couple of years. That's when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah stepped in to insist that the exiles keep going. They wrote a letter to yet another new Persian king, the great Darius I, reminding him that Cyrus had signed off on the legitimacy of this project. Darius agreed and allowed the building to resume. So what's the deal? What's with all the intrigue and petty hatred? The historical record is muddled on just when this division opened up and who this particular group of non-exiles were. Were they the descendants of the original Israelites from Israel? Were they the descendants of the mixed marriages? Were they the Judahites who hadn't been exiled in the first place? And did this division start all the way back even before the Israelite monarchy? Or did it start with the fall of Israel in 720? We just don't know, though of course different scholars have different theories. But how this all manifested itself after the exile, beginning around 520 BCE or so, was the division between those who were exiled and those who remained and the exiles didn't think much of the people who had remained. The exiles referred to those who had stayed behind as Am Haaretz, the people of the land. It was the ancient equivalent of the coastal elites using real Americans as a slur, Simply put, the returned exiles felt superior to those left behind, 
And that was for two reasons. Theology and assumptions about their ancestry. Remember Ezekiel's prophecy from last episode, that Yahweh had gone mobile and resided with the Israelite exiles in Babylon, all but abandoning the destroyed temple and the sacked city of Jerusalem. Because of this, because of their suffering and defeat and Babylonian captivity, the exiles were the true people of Israel. The land of Israel will be restored to them and them alone. The non-exiles were seen as heretics and regarded suspiciously. But ancestry mattered to the exiles too. The returning exiles saw those who had remained as ethnically descended from the Assyrians who had conquered and colonized the kingdom of Israel some 200 years earlier. Because these people had held onto pre-exile religious practices, rather than the updated rituals of the exiles, the exiles no longer considered them pure. They saw their task as cleansing the land of the blended religious practices of those who had remained behind. So the exiles insisted upon separating themselves and their religion from the non-exiles. It didn't matter that this new Jewish ideology encouraged the inclusion of all who worshipped Yahweh, and in some cases even those who didn't. As they weren't the true people of Israel, they were ritually unfit to take part in rebuilding the temple or worshipping there. It didn't matter that everyone, exile and non-exile alike, worshipped Yahweh. The exiles didn't consider those who had remained behind to be legitimately Israelite. This meant keeping the non-exiles as far as possible from anything having to do with the temple, especially rebuilding it. The historian Mary Joan Leith writes that, In theological terms, a conscientiously administered temple ensured the prosperity of the land by honoring the demands of the temple's chief inhabitant, Yahweh. The exiles could claim that knowledge of proper ritual practice belonged to the exiled priestly elite, not to the humbler levels of Judean society who had been beneath the notice of socially discriminating Babylonian deporters. In other words, if you got left behind, it wasn't because God spared you, it's because you weren't good enough for our enemies to bother with. Ouch. But politics was also at play. The temple was a religious institution, but it was also a political one. Since there was no more Israelite or Jewish monarchy, the temple was now indeed both the highest religious and political institution in Judah. Professor Leith notes that the temple had the support of the Persians. Therefore, she writes, whoever controlled the temple stood to accrue financial and political benefits. Again, the exiles felt entitled to all this, as they were the ones who had suffered under the Babylonian exile, but also now been redeemed by God to rebuild the temple. The historian Karen Armstrong writes that, instead of bringing peace to the country, the new Jerusalem became a new bone of contention in the Holy Land. This was the start of a process that would see some of the non-exiles develop their own separate religious structure. It was very similar to Judaism, but they revered different texts, had different holy sites, and emphasized different rituals. For these Sumerians, who would in time become known as Samaritans, Mount Gerizim, in what is today the northern West Bank, not the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, is the holy location from which to pray to God. Yes, Samaritans is in the phrase, Good Samaritan, this is where they come from, and there are several thousand still around today in Israel. But the point, which we'll get into more next episode, is that a great schism opened between those who had returned from Babylon and those who had never left in the first place. Ultimately, says Mary Joan Leith, the exiles or their ideological heirs gained the upper hand in Jewish political and religious affairs, 
and their version of the events of the Restoration dominates the biblical record. History is written by the victors, and it was the Jews returning from Babylon who left their perspective for us in the Hebrew Bible. It's the beginning of a process of separation of the Jews from the non-Jews, of defining this new Judean identity as much by who was in as by who was out. Separation, assimilation, identity, these would be significant struggles going forward for the rest of Jewish history. By the year 515 BCE, the second temple was finished in Jerusalem. Unlike Solomon's temple, the Bible doesn't record too many details about it, but we know at this stage it was a smaller version than the original. This second temple would last for almost 600 years. Priests sacrificed hundreds of animals for the ritual slaughter, a practice that would continue as long as the temple stood, in an effort to expiate Israel's sins and rededicate this holy space. Passover was celebrated for the first time since the Jews had been exiled. Although there remained a significant Jewish diaspora, and that would remain a condition of the Jewish people up to our own day, the forced exile and dispersion of the Babylonian era had ended. For the next 50 years or so, the biblical record goes silent. We don't know what happened. Zerubbabel drops off the pages. There were long rumors that he attempted a brief rebellion against King Darius of Persia and was assassinated. But equally true is that he may have just died of natural causes, the very last leader of the Jews who was related by blood to King David. But starting in the late 400s, two new leaders will emerge, one spiritual and one political, who will in some sense put the capstone on our exploration of the first thousand years or so of Jewish history, with the building of the walls of Jerusalem and the reading of the book we've come to know as the Torah, that's Ezra and Nehemiah for next time. As always, my website is jewaudono.com and my email is jewaudonopodcast at gmail.com. A huge and sincere thank you to those who have donated recently to the podcast. It is incredibly kind and much appreciated. If you chose to list your name, you'll find it on the donate page of my website. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehitraot. See you later. <laughs>